Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, buddy, I'm glad I got you before you check out for a vacation. Although you probably already did check out, right? At least you're here physically. I've turned my OOF message on in Outlook if that counts for anything. (laughs) 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 I don't need any uh, fire alarms right before I go out the door for a week. I don't blame you at all on that. So, yes. So, uh, in fact, uh, who knows how many people are listening this week with it being middle of vacation season here in North America. So, let's get another one going here. Uh, Actually, I got to see a bunch of people who were traveling this last week, and uh, I didn't have to travel. The folks in town here for SP Fest. So, this is the first of three episodes that you'll get folks from, you know, in-person things. So, you have to enjoy Jeremy's voice now while you can, because he's not in the interview because he didn't come to town. I know. I know. One day, we'll all get back to normal and I'll risk the uh, the Rona. Yeah, or more likely a bunch of us will be in Redmond. It's true. <laughs> we'll you can, come, you can come see me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so uh, some news this week, uh, starting off with uh, Microsoft Graph.net SDK. So this is near and dear to my heart, obviously. The, the version 4 is finally out. I know we've talked about dips and drabs about this because it's been coming. So it's now generally available. Folks, go get it. And the first thing Jeremy did was go and get the team. So they're lining them up to, so we'll have them on in a a couple, three episodes ahead. So um, good job on the team and getting that out the door. Yeah, it was good to see so many contributions too to the the repo uh, from external people. So it's great to, to the point where I can't even list them all. Because in the blog, there's too many. It's nice to see, you know, from a shared source perspective, getting some contributions there with our .NET SDK, which is great. And it is awesome to start to see even more streamlined authentication flows too, which is great. Yeah, well, Azure.identity. Know it, love it, use it. Off we go. Also on Microsoft Graph this week, uh, another breaking change in API beta. And so is a blog post from Raju, who I think we had on the show, or you had on the show a while back. Uh, the, the Microsoft Graph Connectors API has changed a bit for those in beta. So um, if that's something that you're doing, well, I guess if, you, if you've if you been involved for a while, you probably saw it coming. But uh, the, the big thing I that caught my attention was fine-grained permissions so I can set up some uh, the connector data to be secure as I need it to be. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, obviously with a beta, you know, we're in preview, we're getting feedback from partners, customers, SIs, service integrators that are building these connectors. And so we do reserve the right to make changes, but I do like the fact that in the last, I guess, two years, we actually announce them before we do them <laughs> rather than, you know, people having to guess or see the change come through in beta and wonder why their code is not working anymore. And so it's nice that Raju in this instance has blogged about fine-grained permissions so you can be a bit more specific about what you can and can't do and then also just with some of the schema changes in the sub namespace to make things a bit easier too um, and so for me although oh it's a breaking change it just shows you that we are listening and we are kind of you know there's a purpose of being in beta we want to make those changes based on the recommendations we get from all the different tap conversations we have and and push these changes out before we bake it into v1 where we can't change it 
or we can, but there has to be a significant amount of notice. Yeah, but in this cloud world, I think this is kind of inevitable, and and this is great. There's a, a announcement coming out. Things will work backward compatible for a little bit of time, and and if this is functionality that you need, like sometimes we do this, we take a dependency on beta, and we watch it every day, and we tell our consumers of our product that hey, we're in a beta area here. If things change, that's you know you can decide whether to live with it or not. So, I think communication is the key, and well done to the team for getting this out. I'd like to see that. Uh, next, uh, on the topic of conversation, I, this next blog post is one that has the longest lead time of announcements that I think I can remember. <laughs> one note is posted, I think. So th this is of particular interest to Jeremy and I because we use OneNote to do our planning and we've gone between every version of OneNote on the planet, I think, right? And sometimes it sings and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> so uh, coming in the second half of 2022, there will be an updated uh, OneNote app. But I think there's changes coming before then too. So I'm not sure, Jeremy, if you have any insight into this as well, but uh, I know you'll be waiting to see it just like I am, right? My knee-jerk reaction was, no, please don't change it. Because I mean, obviously, you know, they pushed the Windows 10 app on everyone and all of my team use the Win32 app. And, and the majority of the reason they do it is because the sections are at the top and the pages are on the right. In the Windows 10 app, the sections and the pages are on the left-hand side in this weird like blade type UX construct. The screenshots in this blog post, the sections are on the top and the pages are on the left. <laughs> so I feel like there must have been some really kind of like meet in the meeting decision that, well, we need sections at the top, but let's move the pages from the right to the left because people in Win 10 are used to them on the left. And that way we'll keep both worlds happy. We shall see how that goes. Well, but you know, on at least I have iOS devices, so my iPad and my iPhone, mm. the everything is on the left. The notebook and the section and the pages are on the left. And then once I get to the page I want, I hit the button to go full screen mode. And so I'm wondering if there's kind of r rationalizing it across the devices maybe. But uh, either way, yeah. as long as sync keeps working, that's all I really care about, right? I still occasionally get prompted to log in, but I don't even have to log in. So, but but good to see it's coming. It actually looks like based on the two screenshots that you can choose, whether you want the sections on the top or you want them on the left, which is kind of interesting. Go have a look at that post because I mean, a lot of people that listen here are using OneNote. I know there's a lot of people that use kind of Notion is another popular note-taking tool. But um, obviously if you're in the ecosystem, your data is in our cloud and it's with everything else and makes it super easy to share if you're in OneNote. And OneNote is on the graph and point as well, right? I can do sections and- It is indeed. You can Graph Explorer content right in there, which we demo Yes, absolutely. Off you go, folks. So switching over to the, the community for this week, the first one is a follow-on post from Tamami Imura. And I apologize if I said that name wrong, but we talked about her blog post a couple weeks back because she was using the VS Code Teams Toolkit extension. Boy, that name is rather hard for me to get through. But she's now done a second post talking about how to use this Teams FX, which is like the, the JavaScript SDK maybe kind of sort of thing, but going through and great screenshots, lots of explanation about how to use this stuff, get up to speed. It, it certainly looks like React code to me or TypeScript code to me, so I don't follow it all the way. But thanks to see, uh, thanks to Tomomi for getting that pushed out. Yeah, and I love Dev.2 as a platform. Snippets look really nice. She's all over the place with the Modi icons that look really nice. 
Uh, it's just super easy to read. The legacy Microsoft Graph logo too in there, right? With the with the circles and the lines connected. I haven't seen that yeah, graphic in a while. But that was nice. um, Yina's work in PowerPoint many years ago. But yeah, just just like this format, I actually just in the background pinged Kristen Womack, which is our DevX lead for Graph, and saying, "Hey, look, we need to get our blogs like this." And I know there's an upgrade coming internally for our blog platform for Microsoft 365. So I'm really hoping they use this as the bar of what we expect from blogs because our current platform is not great to consume and read. Which is why you listen to the podcast because I find them where you know that they're there and we call them to your attention. So there you go. Look at that. Life That's is right. Good. All the way around. Boom. Um, I'll wrap up the community this week with uh, a longtime contributor to the show. Uh, Chris O'Brien has done another post in talking about bringing external data into Microsoft 365 using graph connectors. So uh, Chris is discussing using a ServiceNow example which is kind of be quite quite popular amongst the sample people in the world I've seen uh, ServiceNow. But yeah. anyways, he's, he goes through the steps in typical Chris fashion, a lot of explanation about what he's trying to accomplish in a screenshot that shows the search results with a tab that says ServiceNow. It looks a lot like what we used to do back SharePoint on-prem. So we're finally getting there mm-hmm. in, in the cloud world. So thanks, Chris, for putting all that together. And as usual, his great top-notch blog post. Yeah, it is really neat to see like other people presenting their way of describing graph connectors. And obviously with this one with ServiceNow, being able to search in, you know, uh, Microsoft search in Bing, uh, which, you know, I have as a default in my browser. It's super useful just to kind of get results from our incorporate world as well as the public world or work as they call it as a tab. Being able to see the tabs for ServiceNow there and be able to like search for things like knowledge base articles that are stored in ServiceNow directly in your search experience really kind of gets us to that enterprise search vision. But there's a lot more that you benefit from with graph connectors other than just it showing up in search. And, you know, we talked about activities uh, at Build back in May where they'll show up in office.com and, you know, the e-discovery stuff. But there's some other really neat things we're incubating at the moment. We're about to kick off in our tap program, which, you know, I really can't wait to show people because don't think graph connectors equals search. Basically, there's some really, really cool stuff coming that will break that mold. It's called connectors for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah, we didn't call it the search API for uh, for a good reason. And I think people, because we led graph connectors, we've get it in the search experience as the first experience, but there's a lot more that you can do. So yeah, keep your eye on the the announcement horns there for more on that. Hmm. That reminds me, I'm not sure if we applied for the tech program. I better go ring the boss and figure, <laughs> figure that out. Snooze, you lose. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So, so this week, uh, as I mentioned, I went to SharePoint Fest here in Chicago last week and, and sat down. The first episode was with Tom Reesing, and Tom has been in the SharePoint community for quite a while. Him and I first met down at uh, a user group in Texas. So Tom, now this is, he's not a technical hardcore developer like you, all our listeners are, but I, obviously I talked to him about what he's doing and how folks can use SharePoint syntax and his work as content designer in that team about what we can use as developers and make our, the goals help the end user. So hope you find it enjoyable and we'll we'll chat. Enjoy your vacation, buddy. And we'll chat next time. Thank you. See you, mate.
This week on the podcast, we're back at SP Fest in Chicago and welcoming home Tom Reising. Welcome, Tom. Ah, oh, thanks, Paul. It's great to be in Chicago again. Which I didn't know you went to college here, so that's right. It's awesome, awesome, great to be back. And um, we're back in person, which is also a nice uh, change. So good to see that. And for folks who don't know who you are, I mean, people Texas know, but <laughs> then introduce yourself to our, our audience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as you said, my name's Tom Reising. I work at uh, Microsoft these days uh, doing something we call content design. I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. I moved to uh, Seattle about five and a half years ago from San Antonio, where Paul, you came and visited us. Uh, where we met. Yeah. 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 So thank you for that. And uh, uh, we miss San Antonio and also we're growing to love uh, the Pacific Northwest. Excellent. So, yes, as you said, you do content design, which is totally new for me. And I expect that's new for all the people like me who just write code for a living and don't stick our heads up too often. So let's start by, well, what is your role and what is this content design? Kind of frame it for me, if you will, what that is and what it means. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what developers generally, the most practical aspect of it that uh, you can wrap your head around really easily is uh, the strings. Right. <laughs> so if you're writing modern code these days, you're going to have a resource file and it's going to contain right. all the strings that show up in your user experience. Right. So it's front end design work. That is like the output in a lot of ways of our content design work, uh, but it's not the limit of the work that we do, right? Okay, and, and so um, in, in which products are you designing? I guess we should start there. Sure. So focus on have a little bit there. Yeah, so two products. So I'm working with a team internally we are calling Content Services and Insights. It was formed about two and a half, three years ago to develop new products that integrate AI technology with Microsoft 365 and focused on mainly file collaboration content services, right? Um, so think of it kind of as improvement on enterprise record management and knowledge management of the past, right? Uh, going beyond what those things tried to del <laughs> deliver, right? And not trying to replace those one for one, uh, but along the lines of that. So we, the two products that we released so far were SharePoint Syntax last October was announced at Ignite and uh, it went GA just after that. And we've had multiple updates since then and a lot of great things coming in the future. And then Microsoft Viva Topics, which uh, made general availability in February with the Viva announcement. We were previously calling it Project Cortex topic experiences. There was a limited preview in December uh, and the general availability and we're going to continue to develop that one as well. Right. So, okay. So, excellent stuff. And yes, I remember Project Cortex, so obviously the name that, that a bunch of us remember. And it's interesting how this, this content services, right? And so, in the SharePoint context, content has usually just been like pages and stuff, but this is really more than just your basic web pages or news pages, right? But give us a little explanation of what you, when you say content services, what does the content mean in that context? Yeah, well, and I think, to be fair, we, we know this from working in SharePoint, it's all about the files, <laughs> right? So some of us love the pages and the sites and some of our customers we know have great, built out great intranets and one intranet design wards, right? And that's definitely a part of it. And 
it's probably the most visible part of topics at general availability. Uh, you know, kind of our V1. Um, you you can see the user experience for Viva topics mostly in SharePoint pages. So the insights it brings you from the AI engine in the background are mostly from the activity on files in Microsoft 365. If you and I were working together and we work together on the podcast, the title of the podcast might come up highlighted in a SharePoint page with a description pulled out of a document the two of, you, two of us had worked on that uh, automatically found the description right. inside the file, right? Yeah, and, and then, yeah, that's the demo that we've seen, everyone's seen a thousand times at all the big conferences and so on. So I'm curious, though, as to, to what is this design services that you're doing in this role? This role fascinates me, <laughs> um, right? Obviously, people tell me what they want the code to do, and I go off into the dark corner, write code, and, and hopefully it works, right? What, what, what kind of things are you doing as opposed to, you know, it's not UI design, but what is this content design? It's part of user experience design, and it does affect the UI design uh, itself, right? Because it's not just the words themselves, right? Which as a developer, you, you, um, you mainly see in the resource files, but it's where they're placed on the page, on the card, in the flow, right? So we need to provide an experience that's intuitive for people to use. And a lot of it has to do with the words and the order they show up in the experience, you see them as they come up, right? Yeah, so it sounds a lot like when I do a message and it's got some developer return that makes <laughs> complete sense to me. Someone else says, what does that mean, right? Is that kind of fixing it out, human, humanify, humanifying it, if I can make up a word? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, um, where I get it the most is from engineers. When, I, when we've probably missed it in the design <laughs> stage is mostly it's error messages, yeah. right? So a lot of times I'll have engineers and they're great coders, they may, they may not even be, uh, have English as their first language, right? And they'll say, hey, I need help with this string, right? Yeah. And it, it's an error message that basically we never designed the, that error <laughs> scenario, right? So a lot of times I'll have to say, look, okay, we can make that error message a lot better, <laughs> no doubt, right? Like, uh, but, uh, but also perhaps we could come up with a, <laughs> <laughs> a better flow to, to prevent this error from even coming up in the yeah. first place, right? What I think is interesting uh, from a content design perspective as opposed to UX design, I, I see, and this might not be the same at every company, but a lot of times the design is kind of upfront, right? And then there's a handoff to developers, right? And the PM manages the whole process, but a lot of times with the designers, the UX designers, they'll just end up moving yeah. on to the next thing. So this thing's in code and they're designing another thing. Occasionally you have this issue where, uh, well, a lot of times the developer come back and say, hey, uh, I couldn't quite put this thing where you put it on your picture, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and they'll have some tweaks. But this kind of thing where these error messages come out, after, a lot of times they might not even come out till we're testing it. And uh, there's some <laughs> unknown load condition, right, that comes up that stresses it. And you're yeah. like, yeah, there's an error and uh, we need to fix it, right? So on, th on my part of the design, I tend to be involved with the product development process a lot further down the line than a lot of the, the UX designers, uh, which is good um, because I'm still part of the design team. We can come back and I can say, look, maybe we should handle this a little bit better. But also it's really hard because uh, then uh, the designers I'm working with, they were already moving on to something else, their minds somewhere else. 
I just, I'm responsible for the words in the app, so I can't just let it go, right? I can't just say, that message that Paul wrote that's horrible uh, can just stay there. <laughs> yeah, they, they never make it through. <laughs> yeah, That's fascinating. Um, obviously, that's a, a larger team would have that kind of a right. role. Yeah, pull, at yeah, Microsoft, yeah. we definitely have the ability yeah, to specialize. Yeah. So, a lot of times, it might be the UX designer who's yeah. doing the, the content design role. So, it doesn't have to, the work doesn't have to be a single person yeah. necessarily. The, the, the talk more about the, the product that you're working on, right? You said yeah. Syntex slash Viva something, and there's a lot of confusion in my part about that, right? And and so there's been talk about Project Cortex and Syntex. And so um, obviously we don't need to go deep today, but just give us an idea. What is that? If I'm a developer, what does Syntex mean to me other than just something showing up on the page that I can click on? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll go back, right, to the, you know, formation of this team and some of the previous announcements we made. Like, like I said, the whole idea from the beginning for the formation of this team for content services and insights was that we've got all kinds of great technology at Microsoft, AI, uh, Azure Cognitive Services, Microsoft Research, they're all developing all this stuff. And, you know, it's great text analytics and sentiment analysis. And right every, every week you read about some new AI research breakthrough, right? And it's great if you're a developer and you can figure out Azure Cognitive Services. So, which I can't, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, even if you are a developer, we want to be able to provide something that's um, a kind of a level higher than that, that you don't have to figure out how to apply Azure Cognitive Services to the files in Microsoft 365, that we offer some base level services that they build on what Microsoft Research or Azure does, or even in some cases, the Power Platform with AI Builder, and they expose it in a way that's easier for the users to get to, right? So they don't have to figure out the AI, but in, in some ways we're building some things for developers too that we hope uh, you know, uh, partners can extend as well. Yeah, and so what kind of things that look like, right? So I do remember like the form recognizer, so is that, is that the kind of tools yeah. that we're talking about here? Yeah. yeah. The original vision, we didn't know like how we we're gonna package this stuff. And honestly, on the engineering side, we don't even get to make those decisions, <laughs> right? Like we're just, we, we have a lot of design, we do a lot of user research, and I mean, we, the, the packaging decision came and, and they decided what we've been working on would end up being two different products. Well, yeah, right. And yeah. Uh, so I think that caused a little bit of confusion. So we'd been referring to all of our work as Project Cortex before that, yeah. right? And then the packaging decision came for SharePoint Syntax as it's an add-on to Microsoft oh, 365. Yeah. And so that's one set of services that came out first around, we call it the whole category right now that it does content understanding. And it's split up between form processing and document understanding. And it, the form processing, it's called the same thing in the Power Platform and AI Builder. You can do, you can build a model for form processing. So same place you go for Power Apps and uh, Power Automate right now. There's an AI Builder menu. If you go under that, there's a Models menu, and one of the models you can build is a form processing model. Behind that, just like uh, Azure Logic Apps is behind Power Automate, Azure Cognitive Services Form Recognizer is the tech behind yeah, but behind form syntax recognizer, or, is that yeah, the right one? I think, I think so. That's right. Yeah, form <laughs> recognizer is the uh, the engine behind uh, form processing an AI builder, and then that part of the solution that we've built into SharePoint with SharePoint Syntax. And, and so, when you say build a form model or recognizer model, what does that in practical matters? What does that mean? That whether you're a developer or an accountant, what does that mean to have a, a form recognizer model? 
Yeah, well, you know, in a lot of ways, this goes to the to some things that, Paul, that you and I have been thinking, maybe some organizations, I don't know, when we're optimistic, have moved beyond paper forms, honestly, <laughs> a lot of this. There are quite a lot oh, of organizations sure. that process quite a lot of paper forms. Uh, I was talking to um, Kohler from Kohler, Wisconsin, uh, at the conference today. I mentioned to them that one of the examples if you want to try out form processing you can download some example files to try you just need five examples of the form uh, and you just say like the invoice number is right here you just click on it and say that's the invoice number and a lot of a lot of that's even done for you five times five files <laughs> and then the sixth one you upload uh, as long as it's in the same place which is going to be if it's a scanned form oh, in a right. standard format it's going to pull out that invoice number and write it to the invoice number column in the metadata for that file uh, when you upload a new invoice in SharePoint and they said oh yeah there's we have one person at the company all she does all day long is scan invoices and pull metadata out of them. Wow, manually typing in data from looking at a screen. Yeah, and they have some other, like, so she, they mentioned they use what I would call RPA. I think he called it Power Automate Desktop must be what it's been branded as <laughs> okay. right now. Okay. But it's similar to the clicking thing, except it's like they have got a scanning application where she's like manually clicking on the thing in Windows. Oh, wow. Okay. Right, so they call that, I think they call that RPA where you, it'll, robotically click the same things that you click. Okay, there right. you go. Oh, so it's yeah. like a recording a macro in yeah, the exactly. office. Okay, okay. Right. Yeah. yeah, well, but you know, it solves a problem, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and, that, and that's kind of, right? And so in our pre-recording chat, it's like, you're not a developer and that's fine, but sometimes developers need to understand, hey, there's tools out there that'll get the job done, right? Um, and, and form processing is certainly one of those. The other one I want to dig in is that document understanding. What, what does that mean, right? Because I've heard of the Lewis AI service, language understanding, was it similar, different? Yeah. What, what does yeah. that look like? Absolutely. And um, I mean, you might even see some references in the past. We were in the background, there was some talk about branding it as Lewis. So right now, Lewis, um, it does content understanding. It's right. There is a content understanding model in Lewis that's part of Azure Cognitive Services. And it, you've probably seen it in, in various forms, but a lot of it's about conversational UI, building bots. Right, yeah, Lewis, so I send a sentence and it picks out the main phrases and stuff like that, right? Right, yeah, okay. So this one, for document understanding, it's very similar but different technology that would understand an entire document as opposed to just one utterance, I think they even <laughs> use yeah, Exactly, time, yeah, right? okay. So so it's the language utterance processing bigger scale, right? right. But what kind of, what, what would I expect the, to get out of a document understanding something? <laughs> yeah, so in a lot of ways, document, under, that technology behind document understanding, it fits hopefully where we believe the world is going with more of the digital uh, flow, okay. right? Uh, so it should be able to understand the text in a Word document or a PDF document that you created. It was digital from the beginning, <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. So form processing is really good for that. Again, a lot of people have this, a lot of volume. It can yeah. solve some big problems. I'll give you another example on document understanding. Instead of invoices, think of investment prospectuses. You ever okay. do any yeah. investing? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're it's supposed the, to look at your 12,000 pages that comes every out. time, yeah. right? When you buy a stock, you do that, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, especially if you're a professional who's giving advice, having some type of 
automated way of pulling information out of a standardized document like a prospectus, right? Like yeah. there's a standard format for them. It's not the same as scanning a form and it's physically the, in the same location every time. Oh, right. It's two inches from the top and one inch from the right is my number, right? That's the form understanding. Right. Yeah, Instead, okay. it might just be something like, I don't know, you know, stock ID colon. Okay. And so we can train the model to say, look for stock ID colon, right? Okay. And then the thing that comes after it every time is the stock the ID, number, yeah. right? And based on my understanding of, of Lewis, where I'm doing utterance, if I don't use the word stock ID, but it's a stock or issue or something like this, so if the word's a little bit different, the model's going to help me I still identify that same number. That's, that's the concept I'm Well, guessing? so it, it's interesting. It's, so again, it's not the same engine as what you're used to with uh, the Lewis. Okay. Uh, for, it, it's a different engine. Okay. But a lot of the AI really is about you know, these um, confidence levels, right? Okay. Okay. So there's different tweaks to the model that can increase the model's ability to confidently find that every time. Right. right, okay, okay. And so in this case, these phrases, as we like, to, or patterns. Uh, so you could use like, you can even now use reg regular expressions. So you're familiar with that. Well, there's only developer. six developers in the world who can use those properly. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> which is why content understanding is invented. <laughs> we did provide, we've provided <laughs> templates. So uh, for example, there's a really good one. There, you know, standard regex for a email address, That's right? Okay, yeah. um, that's a pretty common thing. And so then a lot of times what you can do is the combination of that maybe a word or phrase that occurs before the email address that might identify that particular email address. And then the regular expression pattern of finding an email address, those two pieces together increase the confidence of the model to be able to find that specific email address and identify it and always pull it out. Okay. Or yeah. very often, most likely, likely. pull it out. Are, are they combine together to improve uh, the okay. confidence. And, and so what's popping into my head, like there's, um, you said email address, but a lot of PII is a standard format. Is the, the, the content understanding also part of that PII protection services? I mean, I could use it that way, right? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, you know, there's a really good connection between security and compliance and document understanding and form processing and even uh, Viva Topics as well, which is, you know, the other product to work on. You know, uh, generally, there is distinct capabilities uh, in the security and compliance offerings okay. and uh, through SharePoint syntax. And then there's some places we integrate. So uh, I'll give you one example. You probably Have you ever done any of the records management searches and the compliance? <laughs> it's been center? a while, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you're yeah, familiar. Yeah, it's yeah. been it, like it's in something like that's that, been yeah. around the SharePoint world for quite a long okay. time. And now it's got its own like compliance admin space. So what that'll do is go through all the content, not just files and pages, but emails too, right? Um, you can do some searches like that. And that's like for a legal discovery and hold kind of thing. Um, and, with a, and there's auditing involved with that, right? So that's a whole compliance toolkit on its own. And, and it's involving, it also is, try, is using, applying some of these same AI techniques in there. But that's going to be different. It's targeted at a compliance officer, right? This is targeted more at uh, sort of the information worker. However, an example where we integrate really well together is that you can, there's two pieces of document understanding. One's classification of the document. So like, I know this is a prospectus. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the so type, okay, yeah. Words and phrases or 
happen, right? And uh, I'm pretty confident this is a prospectus. Similar to that, it might be, th there might be like a resume, right? You might be able to determine something's a resume. And at your company, you might say that resumes are very likely to include personally identifiable information in them, addresses, phone numbers, things like that. And your, your com company policy might be that we apply spe specific retention or specific security um, labeling to anything that has a person's email address or phone number or, or, or like a customer's or somebody who's not an employee, they might be a different party. But just by default, we might say any resume, we're going to apply a retention policy to it and we're going to mark it confidential so it's not available for external sharing and it's limited in sharing inside Microsoft 365. Okay. okay. And so now is those kind of actions part of what we see in syntax and or topics or is that more the protection or both? I guess if you can try to help yeah, yeah. navigate us if you would. <laughs> right, right. So syntax, you apply a document understanding model or a form processing model to a library. Right. So then any new document added to that library will run through that classification to check for that model that you've trained. Is this a resume or not? And then any of the uh, information you've trained it to extract, like email addresses or phone okay. numbers. Okay. And then, of course, you might just use like at Microsoft, every single site you create has to have a uh, security label on it. If you're building out a site that's going to hold resumes, you're, you're going to mark the whole site confidential. So you might not even need to do this. But as part of the model, when you build it out, you can say every time this model's active and a new file's added and it's, it's recognized as a resume, just that file also label it confidential Actually. as well. That way, if the file gets moved to a different site, it carries that classification yeah, along with yeah, it. Right. And similarly for retention. So you can uh, say in the model's properties, always associate this retention policy with this model. So anytime it recognizes a file of this type, always apply this retention policy. Right. I, I like that. And and now, again, uh, this might be an assumption, but you had mentioned how the, the like, logic, Azure has logic apps behind what Power Automate is running, and, and there's some Lewis cognitive services behind. So is this document understanding, might there be pieces in Azure we could apply that to something outside of SharePoint? And or is Microsoft already doing this outside of SharePoint and then the other stuff in the suite? So right now, there's not a, um, there's not something like, a form recognizer on the document understanding side. It's only part, you can only get it with SharePoint syntax uh, right now. That you'll also see that difference in terms of the user experience for training models. So training a model with AI Builder is kind of the end user experience. I haven't actually gone through it on the form recognizing side. Okay. Right? okay. I think on that side, it, maybe it's all by STK. I don't know uh, what kind of model building experience they have as a, even like a power user and form recognizer. For this model that's behind document understanding, the only way you can build a model right now is uh, through SharePoint syntax. And then the experience is actually really built into SharePoint. Right? Okay. So you create a... Um, a special type of site template called a content center. And that's right now the only place you can build a model in SharePoint is from the content center. And that's where they're all stored and you get all your... Um, is that where my documents have to live too or is it just the model that's in the You content? can apply it to any library in Microsoft okay. 365 and, you know, including team, okay. uh, Teams uh, file libraries, right? Because there's SharePoint behind them. Right, um, right, okay, yeah. 
and you can build multiple content centers, uh, but for the uh, for the most part, what we're seeing customers do right now, they're just they've got one main content center. That they, they've probably got a couple of different use cases they're thinking about, yeah. right? And uh, they can manage them centrally. You can also see usage statistics across all the libraries where the models applied. Okay, you know how many files are being classified by certain models and how much information is being uh, yeah. extracted. And with this being a somewhat new technology, I can't imagine customers have hundreds of people building models that need to have separate content centers, right? I'm guessing this early stage in the adoption, it's six or seven people and they're working together and sharing. So having them all in place is probably helpful in that regard, I would guess, right? Yeah. 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 And I think um, when we do get to the point of adoption where the people, I mean, and we know this, right? You have to build your solutions to allow for scale. <laughs> exactly. Long term, right? If yeah, you don't, yeah. you're in for a world yeah, of problems yeah, yeah, later. Yeah. There's still going to be a centralized ability to do um, some analysis of it if companies want to, right? So they may even have, it might even end up with some kind of like a hub model. But yeah. right, that's going to be built out as customer demand <laughs> exactly, requires. Exactly. It. Now, um, we didn't spend much time on, on topics, but in my brain, I'm drawing the connection then if, if you can analyze and, and classify or extract data out of documents, that's kind of how it feeds what becomes a topic is what I'm guessing, right? Is that, have I got that right or is there more to it than that? And obviously, we don't want to talk for seven, seven hours on a thing, but how does topics fit in with all that and what might be interesting for, for us to know? Definitely, I'd say at this point, uh, where they where the, both the products are right now, the ability to basically enhance the metadata of your files and apply security and compliance features to them just out of the box makes topics work better. Okay. Right? Because topics is basically based on search in the back end for the most part, right? Like we're probably, you know, we're familiar with all of the metadata is available as a property to make a decision from the AI engine, right? right and right. so the richer your metadata, the more you're feeding to this AI engine to be okay. able to make its decisions on what's a useful topic, what what people should should see, right? Okay. So they're not necessarily directly interconnected, but the output of the understanding enhances the data used to generate a topic is how I would phrase it. Yeah. Which is which is fascinating. I mean I can see a lot of a lot of potential for all kinds of fun things there. Yeah. Yeah. I think there may be more coming. And then the other thing that's come out of this group and it and it's right now there are some enhanced content services besides just document understanding and form processing that come with SharePoint Syntax license. So, and this has come up at, at SharePoint Fest a couple of times, content type improvements on the content type administration, because when we classify a file, it's given a content type as well, right? So that's part of, we need that, we rely on that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we've improved the content type experience for people who have SharePoint syntax license. And then um, the taxonomy service, right? Which we were referring to as a term store before. We also have built that out because again, you can apply uh, tags from the managed metadata as part of the info that you extract. So if you're pulling out like your company uh, building numbers, you could have that in the term store, all the building numbers, uh, and it would only assign building numbers uh, from the term store, right? 
Yeah, excellent. Yes. And and for the listeners, we're, it's on our roadmap to get uh, more of the engineering groups are behind content types and taxonomy and uh, to talk more about that. Because even this week that we're recording, the Message Center had an update on the content type sync has been approved. So great to see. Well, Tom, this is awesome. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time out of, out of the busy comings and goings at the conference. And we're both chuckling because of some friends of ours who are giving us grief. But I appreciate you taking the time. It's great to see you as well. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. Great show. I love it. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.M365DevPodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 